So you know they say, and um, you know it's not polite to talk about religion. What is it? Religion, politics, or money? Right? You've heard that. Well, today we're going to hit two of the three. Uh, we're going to obviously. You want your preacher to talk about religion, right? When he gets up. Um, we're also going to talk about money as well. Now, why are we going to talk about money like this today? Well, because to be honest, you guys aren't donating enough. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> that's not what's going on. Well, um, a couple weeks ago, I called Chris and, um, uh, sorry, uh, my notes just disappeared. Um, there we go. I called Chris and I said, um, hey, Beta Breakers is happening and, you know, can we just team up in the evening so we don't have to worry about it. And I'll just do whatever was next in Luke. And I, then I didn't really look at whatever was next in Luke. And it was this really weird, um, this weird, weird parable, right, that we're going to read through today. Um, but here's the thing. So the real reason we're going to do this is just because it's next, next in Luke. But actually, a whole bunch of what Jesus has been talking about in our porch, at the porch we're going through Luke, you know, it's just he's been talking about money. And Jesus talks about money a lot. And today, he's going to do it in a really confusing way. Um, as you first read through this parable, it's very odd. Um, like, did you guys know, here's how I'll illustrate it. Did you know Fidel Castro was really good at baseball? And he really liked baseball? Right? Do you know Fidel Castro? My only one, you guys are looking at me blank like you never heard of this guy. Right? Uh, anyway, <clears throat> Fidel Castro, he was really into baseball. Like, uh, he sponsored teams, and that's why there's a ton of players coming up to the major leagues now from Cuba and stuff. It was all goes back to Fidel Castro. He had a pretty mean fastball from what I've heard. So a coach could technically say to his high school players or his college players or pres or whatever, you guys, you should be more like Fidel Castro, my baseball team, right? He was dedicated. He was hardworking when it came to baseball, and he had a pretty mean fastball. Wait, did you just tell us we should be like Fidel Castro, the murdering tyrant who <laughs> oppressed his people? Well, kind of. If you're playing baseball, you should be like Fidel Castro. And if you're not playing baseball, maybe don't be like Fidel Castro. That's kind of what Jesus does here with this parable today. It's very easy to go home and be like, did Jesus just tell us to be like this wicked servant that seems to steal from his master? Is that, what, is that what's going on? Well, kind of. Um, so we're going to take a look at it, uh, kind of in-depth. We're going to walk through it. Let me just give you, for those of you who haven't been walking through it with us uh, at the porch, um, through the book of Luke. Chapter 13, Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship and what it really means to follow him and how it impacts your whole life. And uh, so many American Christians, this part hits real home for us because we're really good at doing what I call like um, TV dinner faith. You guys remember TV dinners? Anybody else have these growing up? It's disgusting, right? You've got your tray, your little plastic tray, and it's got its sections. You know, you've got your Salisbury steak, right? It's always Salisbury steak. Uh, something that's green, but you're not really sure what it is. It's supposed to be vegetables, right? Some, that, that soupy potato thing, and then uh, peach cobbler, right? And it, it, they're all compartmentalized, and they never touch each other, and you can't have that over here. You know, you can't have your peach cobbler touch whatever's that soupy potatoes. Um, that's how we treat life is I've got my TV dinner life. I've got my work over here. I've got my family over here. And I've got my faith over here. And so this whole section, what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples, as they're all heading as a group to Jerusalem for Jesus to face the cross, he's trying to get them ready for what's coming next. And he's trying to tell them, guys, your life is not TV dinners. Your life is fried rice. Right? Everything's all in there. Was the soy sauce is on the fried rice. It's all mixed up together. 
I know nobody ate dinner, now you're all hungry, right? For fried rice and Salisbury steak. Um, <laughs> isn't it? No, what is it? What's the sauce, don't they? No? Anyway. You know, something in there, they cook it all in. You get the idea. All the food is mixed together. <clears throat> this is what Jesus is teaching his people, and what he says is that includes your money. And so there's actually been a handful of parables in this last section in teachings where Jesus talks about money, um, and now he continues that. So we're going to read uh, this whole parable. We're going to walk through it together. So verse 1, he says to his disciples, he also said to his disciples, there's a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought, against, were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. He called him, and he said, what is this I hear about you? Turn in your account of the management, for you can no longer be the manager. So the parable opens up. Right? There was a rich man. Um, in this culture, this is one of the things Jesus is spending so much time fighting against. This culture was very prosperity gospel kind of oriented, where if they, this is what they believed. If you had a lot of money, it's because God was blessing you. And if you didn't have a lot of money, it's because God was punishing you for something. So the Pharisees had a lot of money, right? And um, in a couple of weeks, we'll read about the Pharisees who were lovers of money. It even describes them like that. Jesus describes them like that. Um, they thought, look, we have all this money, and that's because we're better than you, right? And uh, because we're doing this religion stuff correctly, right? And so Jesus, kind of a lot of what he's teaching here in this whole section, this whole, in the broader context of this part is, that's not really how it works. And so even in the last section, he was talking about the um, prodigal son parable. It's just the, the kingdom is flipped. The kingdom is not what you would expect it to be according to this world's standards, Right, and so he opens it up, though. There's this rich guy who everybody would have automatically heard, oh, he's being blessed, he's probably a great guy. And then the second character is the manager. So this is some sort of a steward who was in charge of the estate. He had full authority. He would have had full authority over the master's money, right, over this rich guy's money. A modern version of this would be something like a money manager uh, who can invest your money, right, somebody that you trust, Somebody that you've signed papers that says, this guy can take money out of my accounts and put it into other accounts, and he doesn't have to call me first. Right? But this manager, he's no good at it. Right? He's not a faithful manager. This is the original Bernie Madoff. Right? He is ripping people off. By the way, I just watched a documentary about Bernie Madoff, completely unrelated to this. That is a crazy story, how long he got away with it. I don't remember what it was on. Go find it on whatever streaming thing. It's really interesting. Right, so this guy, he's Bernie Madoff. And as we'll learn from this too, um, this guy was accused of stealing this money. And these were not false accusations. There's nothing in the text that says it wasn't true. Right? Like, this is not a false, uh, you know, not a false accusation like when I was in third grade and my teacher accused me of stealing money from her purse that I didn't even steal, right? This is a true accusation, like when I was in sixth grade and I did steal a bunch of stuff. And my future mother-in-law, hey, Kathy, who's sitting back there, was a chaperone on our field trip and she got me suspended because she caught me. This is like that. He actually did this one and he gets busted. And we're never told who was the rat, right? Who was the snitch, who, <laughs> you know, that part's not really that important. Somebody found out, somebody noticed. This guy is acting like Bernie Madoff. He's ripping people off, he's stealing. So he tells the, the, the rich guy, and he shows up, and he says, hey, turn in the accounts. You're fired. Right? You are no longer the guy. Uh, I need the books from you. So verse 3. So the manager said to himself, uh, what do I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, 
I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I'm too ashamed to beg. All right, so his problem, here's his problem. Another one of these crooks. You guys know the whole Theranos story with Elizabeth Holmes? Do you guys know this story? Anybody? Yeah. Uh, she started um, Theranos, this company, that said they could do like a couple hundred um, tests from a single drop of blood. And she raised all this money. None of it was true. She was completely faking people out and stealing money from investors. She's a big fraud, right? Well, she just was found guilty of this. I think she's going to have to do some jail time. She's going to get out of jail at some point, right? It's not a life sentence. Imagine if somebody like Elizabeth Holmes in this famous story shows up at wherever you work and applies for a job. Right? Is she even going to get an interview anywhere? I don't know what she's going to do for the rest of her life. And especially if you're the person and you know this story and her resume comes across your desk, you're going to laugh, you're going to show your friends, and then you're going to throw it in the, in the, the garbage. Right? That's this guy's problem. I, I don't know what I'm going to do next. I'm all of a sudden Elizabeth Holmes. Right? He's never going to be allowed to be a money manager again. He's never going to find a position as a steward again. He doesn't have a lot of options. Right? I'm not strong enough to dig. A lot of the commentators made jokes about this, basically. Like, he might have been strong enough to dig. He's probably too lazy to dig. And I was like, hey, I get that. Uh, <laughs> I never built anything in my entire life. Um, he says, I'm too ashamed to beg. He doesn't want to sit in the city gate asking people for money. He was just, you know, the, the millionaire with the private jet. and what, You know, he was just somebody. He can't go to being the beggar. Basically, he has no idea what he's going to do. Right? There's no government safety net. There's no unemployment. So he comes up with a plan. That's what he does. Verse 4. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from the management, people may receive me into their houses. He says, look, I've got this plan. He's scheming. He's doing the very thing that got him fired, acting selfishly. Acting <clears throat> also just kind of outside of the social norms. This, is, this would have been a very weird parable for the people listening to this. Like, this is not where they would have expected Jesus to take this story. So he says, look, I'm gonna, I have this scheme I'm going to come up with so that people will receive me into their houses, meaning I'm going to set myself up so that at some point one of these people will want to hire me again. Right? I'll, I'm going to make some friends, and then one of those people will give me a job uh, doing something. He says, look, I'm looking at my circumstances now. I'm looking at where I want to go, and I'm trying to figure out how can I get from here, how can I get from here to there. I'm going to commit more fraud because I just got in trouble committing fraud. I think that's going to get me out of this whole situation. That's his logic. He's a bright guy. Verse 5. Let's keep going. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. He said to another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Um, it's funny, I, I tell the porch people this a lot, like when I'm studying these passages, how much... Uh, ink is spilled on the stuff that's not really that important when I'm reading and reading commentators and theology books and stuff. It's funny. These commentaries had huge sections, everybody arguing about the numbers. How much did he give away? You know, what did this look like? How big of a thing was this? I don't think the numbers are actually really that important. What's important is what he did. Right? He, he, this is what he did. He looks at the books. He, he probably went down, he sat down in his office, and he was freaking out. I just got fired. I don't know what to do here. He said he needs the books. So, there, you know, he had the books. Remember, this is old school. There's no uh, cloud sharing back in the day. There's no databases. There's no Dropbox, syncing, whatever. There was one book, and he wrote in it. And whatever was in that book, the master probably had never even seen. And he was the guy. He had full trust. 
So he sits down with this book. He looks at the book. And he thinks, I have no, you know, I, I come up with, he came up with this idea. So he calls down the people who owed his master money. He said, how much do you owe? I owed this much. Great. You know what? Just write half of whatever that is. Wait, really? Have you ever been given a giant gift and you didn't know how to react? And so you said, are you sure? <laughs> right? That's what this guy, that's probably what happened. People were shocked. Are you sure? That's a lot of money. Right? This is, a, this is a huge debt that I owe. Imagine if you're, you know, if you have a car loan. If the car loan company called you, some guy at the, the bank called you, was like, you know what, actually, you only owe half of that now. You'd be pretty, well, thanks. What's your name? You know? <laughs> Seems like a nice guy. He just gave me 15 grand off of my car loan or whatever. That's what he does. So then the second guy comes in. What do you owe? Okay, write this much down. And it says he did this with two. You can kind of imagine. There's a lot of these folks who owed his master money. Came in one by one, sat down. So he writes it down, and then he turns in the books. Now, we need to be clear here. Some people don't like what Jesus is saying. A lot of the commentators and theologians and guys, they try to pretty this up. Well, maybe what he was doing was he was taking his commission away. That's what some people will say. Right? Like, out of this sale, this manager would get a commission for it. So he told these people, don't take your commission most people agree, though, that's probably not what's going on here. This guy is stealing from his boss to make himself, to set himself up for what's coming next. He's lying to these people. He's lying to his boss. This is going to cost his boss a lot of money, you know, the master a lot of money. Also, that maybe, in the off chance, maybe one of these people will give him a job down the road. Right? So he can call in these favors. Now, this is the weirdest part of the whole text. Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. What? Wait. Right, this is confusing, isn't it? This guy, he just ripped you off. Right, we would expect the master to be angry. I watched that Bernie Madoff documentary. I didn't see one single person go, he was clever, though. <laughs> right? As he, as he wasted away my life savings and ruined my life. Yeah, he was clever. Right? Imagine, if, imagine how you would feel if you found out somebody did this to you, was stealing money for you like this. But that's what the master does. He says, wow, that was impressive. Now, the explanation to this is to look at it carefully. Right? He commended the shrewdness, not the dishonesty. It's weird, but this is the parable Jesus, sorry, this is the parable Jesus gives us. Say what you will about the guy that ripped me off. He was pretty clever in the way that he set himself up after he was going to get fired. Right, which means probably the manager, or sorry, the, the master wasn't that great of a guy either. He looked at another criminal and went, hey, that was pretty clever how he just ripped, you know, um, two mobsters ripping each other off or something like that is probably what's going on, you know. But we have to admit, it's odd, right? Because I don't think this is how I would feel. But this is what Jesus says. And then Jesus explains it in verse 8. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So now it shifts from the parable to Jesus's explanation of the parable. Some parables, as you read through Luke and Matthew and the other spots with the parables, a lot of these parables, Jesus just leaves wide open. So at the porch, we just finished, we did two weeks doing the prodigal son. In the end of the prodigal son story, we don't even find out the end of the story. The end of the story is the older brother is standing outside being invited into the party. And it's like, does he go in? Does he not go in? We don't know. So we have to explain it. We have to interpret it. But the first rule of interpreting parables is if Jesus actually explains the parable, go with that. Right? It's pretty simple. You know, I, 
I don't know if it's in those how to interpret parable books, but it's a pretty simple rule, right? If Jesus explains it. So what he does here, he explains his parable. And he contrasts these two groups of people. The first is the sons of this world. So the shrewd manager represents just kind of regular people in the world, people outside the kingdom of God. Then he talks about the sons of light. These are the children of the kingdom of God, right? These are the disciples of Jesus, the people who are, at this moment, traveling with him to Jerusalem and are following him and listening to his teaching. And what he says is those other guys are more shrewd. They're more cunning. They're smarter than you guys in the way that they deal with this. Now, look at the, how the guy in the parable behaves. He had a goal. He looked at what he had in front of him, and he thought, how can these, this situation that I'm in lead me to that goal? What can I use these resources that I have? How can I use that to lead me to this goal? Um, it's like MacGyver. You guys remember MacGyver from, what was that, the 80s? I'm going to be honest, I don't, I've never seen an episode of MacGyver. I just kind of know the joke, right? Is he builds a bomb out of a, you know, a toothpick and a soda can and whatever, you know. But that was his whole thing, is he looks at whatever kind of stuff was in front of him. How can I build whatever I need to escape this, you know, this terrorist's um, dungeon or, I don't know, I've never actually seen the show, right? But this is kind of what this dude does, right? He sort of MacGyvers this situation. All right, what do I have? I have this book, I have, you know, he looks around, I need a job. How can I use the stuff that's in front of me to get a job? And Jesus says, without praising the immorality of what he does, he commends the attitude of the cunning, the attitude of the shrewdness, the attitude of looking at what he had in front of him, looking at his goals and saying, how can I use this to get me here? That's what we should be emulating. Do a better job of planning ahead. Use what you have in front of you to get you to your ultimate goal. And so Jesus now, with his disciples, he flushes this out a little bit more in verse 9. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. That's a key. The way he puts that is important. The word there is mammon. If you've heard preachers or whoever talk about that, it, it it means wealth is a good word. It doesn't just mean money. It means like all of your stuff. What he says about that stuff is it's unrighteous. Now, we don't want to flip the pendulum too far. And we don't want to say, well, everybody in the first century thought if you had stuff, it was because God was blessing you. And if you didn't have stuff, it's because God was punishing you. And we don't want to read the book of Luke and then flip it the other way around. God only loves the poor and he hates all the rich people. Right? If you have stuff you're not really part of the kingdom, and your wealth is unrighteous, because that's not really what we see in Scripture. There are a lot of very righteous, wealthy people, right? Lydia in the book of Acts, or somebody like Abraham. Or, you know, there's a lot of folks with some money who were great people. Job is another one. Um, so what does he mean when he calls the wealth unrighteous? I think what he means is, it's not worth your worship. Right? It can't handle making you righteous. It won't ultimately satisfy you. And that's what he means there when he says, so that when it fails, right? Not if you put all of your trust in your wealth, and then if that fails, that's not what he says. He says that your wealth is unrighteous, so that when it fails, your money will fail you. It's not worth your hope and your trust and your love and, you know, your worship. Um, the great American philosopher put this really well. His name is um, Jim Carrey. You guys know this guy? Um, Greatest actor of our generation, just kidding. 
Uh, he says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything that they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. Right? I, I've seen a couple interviews with Jim. I don't know anything about him. I've just seen a couple little clips where he seems like he's one of those people that got everything, he, kind of fleshing this out. And he still is like empty on the inside. He's trying to figure out why. He has everything he wanted. And he, so here he says, I wish everybody was rich like me. I think Jim Carrey probably has a lot of money. You know, I don't know. I've seen Ace Ventura like a hundred times. He's getting those residuals. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> this guy has money. And he says this is not going to satisfy you. So if you right, have money, don't put your hope in it, is what Jesus says. Now we have to ask ourselves, do we have money? Well, if you live in the United States, you have more stuff and money and wealth than basically everybody in human history. You know, you're in the top half of a percent of everybody. Even being broke in America puts you better off than basically everybody else who has ever lived. And so what Jesus is saying is really applicable to us, specifically American believers, right? Western believers. We have a lot of stuff, and we're really good at putting our trust in it, right? So if we're not supposed to put our trust in our money, we're not supposed to lean on our money for our justification, what do we do with it? Well, Jesus says, make friends by means of unrighteous wealth. So you have all this wealth, this stuff, there's nothing wrong with that. But what do you do with it? You make friends, just like the manager in the parable. Use what you have in front of you to make friends, but in what sense? Right? Are we supposed to use our money to make friends, you know, like the prodigal son did, where he went out and he took all his dad's stuff, he cashed out them, you know, he liquidated the, his part of the estate, he went out and he spent it, and they probably had big parties, and there were a lot of people around. And then when the money disappeared, what was he doing? He was by himself eating, trying to eat pig food. Right? Those weren't real friends. That's, you know, that's not what he means. Don't, Jesus isn't saying, just use your money to you know, go down to the bar and buy everybody around, or you know, whatever. That's not exactly what he's saying. What he's saying is um, to build these relationships, so look at this, that they may receive you into eternal dwellings. This is the key, eternal friendships. The manager's goal in this parable was what? To get a new job. That was as far as he was looking down the road. The goal of kingdom-minded people, though, is a lot further than that. It's not just get a new job. It's to spend eternity with other people from San Francisco. Right? I say this a lot. You know what's going to suck if we get to heaven and everybody there is from Texas? <laughs> right? Because I'm from here. I just thought I was rag on Texas. Uh, right? It was why I planted a church in San Francisco. It's why most of us are committed to the city of San Francisco, right? For us, we're, you know, we're here, we're in the Bay Area, we love this. So what we want to do is think about our ultimate goal is to get into the new heavens and the new earth, this restored, glorious kingdom of God, and to see other people there from San Francisco. And with our money and our stuff, our wealth, we should be as shrewd moving towards that goal as this guy was moving towards his goal. So his was short-sighted, ours was eternal. Now, Jesus, like I said, he talks about money a lot. Like a lot. You know, more than Paul and more, you know. When you read the New Testament and you read the Gospels, you see Jesus constantly talking about money. Why? Because it's such a common trap. It's such an easy, popular idol. It's so easy to put our trust and our hope in our things and in our stuff. So Jesus tells him this parable about the shrewd manager. Now, what he does is he ends it by giving sort of three uh, points, teach it, you know, his three-point sermon here real quick. Faster than my sermon, by the way. 
uh, but Jesus' three-point sermon about money. So here's the three points. Here's the first one. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? So the first principle, he says, is it kind of works smaller to greater. This is his first idea about money. The way that you handle money is a window into what's really going on deep down in your soul. And so uh, the way you handle money is going to be a great indicator of how you're going to handle more responsibility and more stuff in the kingdom of God. Right, so that's his first point, is look within yourself and look at how you spend your money and think about money, because it's really connected to Jesus entrusting you with more later on. Next, the second point, verse 12. If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? So he talks about, next is, your money actually is not even your money, right? We're managers. We're just like this guy. He was taking care of somebody else's stuff. And this isn't a whole sermon on stewardship. I'll let Chris do that another time. But the, the big idea here is everything we have is a gift from God. And if we think of it like that, I'm not thinking about how do I spend my money. I'm thinking about how do I spend God's money, right? It's not how much of my money do I give away to the Lord. It's how much of God's money do I keep for myself, Those are two very different ways to view wealth and to view stuff. And it's a very common theme throughout Scripture, the idea of stewardship. All right, now his third point, verse 13. No one can serve, uh, sorry, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the same thing like what we read earlier from Matthew, the same idea. You cannot serve God and money. Look at the beginning of this, though. No servant. The assumption here, this is very important, is that you are a servant. You're going to serve something. You're going to take your hopes and your dreams and your idea of how am I saved and how, you know, um, like my justification, you're going to put that on something. You can't help but do it. And the way the Bible talks about human beings as being servants is very different from the way that we in our culture think about how humanity works deep, deep down on the inside. Um, there's a really interesting book right now by a guy named Carl Truman called uh, Strange New World. Isn't that what the Star Trek is called too? Strange New Worlds? I never thought. Of. Anyway, uh, different from Star Trek. Uh, this book, he talks about what he calls expressive individualism, and um, he's building on like, um, you know, from 50, 60 years ago, the existentialist movement. And the idea with this is, it goes like this. You're your own world, okay? You're an individual, you're an island. And your life and the way that you find meaning in your life is on your own. You have to be true to yourself. You've heard that in our culture, right? The biggest sin that we can commit now in our culture is not being true to ourselves. And the idea is then, I'm not a servant to anyone but myself, right? I'm completely on this island. And so... um, I find true meaning by painting my own picture of what my life is supposed to look like. And if you get in the way of that, that's like really awful. Like that's one of the worst things we can do now is to tell somebody, hey, I think this thing you're doing is bad. But this is who I am on the inside, right? This is how people think. We're these like individual like silos, right? But the biblical, and we don't serve anybody but ourselves. The biblical picture though is different. It's that you weren't made to be an individual exactly. You were made for community. You were built for relationships. And when humanity was created, we were put in the Garden of Eden perfectly in unity with God the Trinity. 
And that's where humanity thrives. That's where we experience the most joy, the most fulfillment. But what happened at the fall was we moved away from that community. And we said, I don't want to serve you, Lord. I want to serve myself. And so uh, I don't want you to be my Lord. I'm going to be my own Lord. And then we left the perfect God, and we've spent all of human history walking around, connecting ourselves to lesser gods, to things that won't satisfy us, to things that won't ultimately work. And so the ultimate sin isn't just like not being true to yourself, right? The ultimate sin is moving your worship away from a creator and onto yourself. And the stuff that Carl Truman talks about in this expressive individualism is, in human history, kind of the pinnacle of that. That I don't need anybody else, I'm the center. But the biblical picture is, no, 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 you're a worshiper. You were built to worship, you were built to be in community with something, to be united to something. And all we do is move that union from one thing that doesn't work, and I'm, you know, I'm going to put all my hopes and dreams on my marriage, and then I'm going to crush my wife with these expectations, or my work, or family, or hobbies, or my pride, or money, or whatever it is, right? We just move things around. And Jesus's point here is, you're going to be a servant to something, and money is not going to do it. This mammon, this stuff, the security that you think it can bring, it can't. And this is what Jim Carrey apparently has figured out, right? I don't think he's figured out that then where to put that worship, but he's figured out, okay, money doesn't work. And so what Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. Right? You can't have two masters. You ever had two bosses? Has anybody else had a job like this? I had one a long time ago. Where I had two bosses that never talked to each other and constantly told me to do opposite things. And I was always in trouble with one of them, and I didn't know what to do about it. And this is what Jesus says. It doesn't work, right? You've got to have somebody in charge in your life. You have to put your worship in one thing. And if you're walking around and you think that this money is going to satisfy me, money is going to tell you this love and this worship of money and stuff and the security that it brings, that's going to pour one set of truths into your life that are going to be the opposite of the truths poured into your life through the gospel story and through Scripture. And so Jesus says, you can't have us both, can't serve two. So that's the passage. Let's take this whole passage. Let me just give you two quick ideas here, How the, what we see here about money. The first is this. Our redemption, what it does is it moves the center of our being from lesser idols back to the creator God. That has to be the foundation of us talking about money is what really happens is like it's a core thing. It's deep, deep down. Jesus doesn't teach about money, right? His teaching about money is not just about behavioral modification that you need to engage in to be more righteous. He doesn't just say, spend your money better, and then God will love you more. That's not what he says. What he says is a, this is a root-level teaching. This goes all the way down and down and down into your soul. So that when you look at your life and you realize, man, I really don't use my money for the kingdom. I don't use my stuff. I don't think about it like that. The answer isn't surface level. It's root level. Don't change your spending habits. Change your allegiance. That's what he says. You got to move your allegiance from money and the security that stuff and money brings back to your creator. So that's the first idea, is that it's this deep root level thing. The second idea, though, is because now our allegiance has been moved back to our creator, because of our redemption. 
We don't serve money anymore, and we should be shrewd about how we use our stuff. And that's what Jesus teaches here, right? This whole, this passage is weird. Jesus just said, this guy stole a bunch of money, and you should be more like this guy. It's an odd passage, but remember, it's like Castro's fastball, right? In one arena, you should be like Fidel Castro, and you should throw a really good fastball. And if you ever get a job in the government, maybe don't be like Fidel Castro, That's kind of what Jesus says. It all rests on, it's very easy to misinterpret this parable, but it's actually very simple if you don't overthink it. This guy was shrewd. He was cunning. He was smart. He looked at what was in front of him. He looked at his goals. He said, how can I use this to get me to here? And then he acted on it. His goals aren't worth emulating. His methods, definitely not worth emulating. But what Jesus said is the shrewdness, that's the key. We should take our goals and our moral code and we should act shrewdly. That's what Jesus wants from his people. Act with cunning. So what are our goals, though? How are our goals different? Our goals are, and if you've, you know, in the podcast or you've been with us at the porch and you've read any of this, right? we're talking a lot about the upside-down kingdom of God. These are our goals. To live into what is in, um, live eternity here and now taking care of those at the bottom, taking care of, you know, the Bible talks about orphans and widows and the poor, taking care of each other, evangelism and missions, right? We live with eternal perspective. That's what we do. That's our goal. We constantly think about eternity. Imagine the year is 1998. You have $100,000 to invest with everything you know now. You go back in time or whatever. Would you rather buy $100,000 worth of Apple stock or baseball cards? Right? I think I watched a whole documentary about how baseball cards aren't worth any money anymore. And this guy had this collection and he went to go cash it out. And they were like, I'll give you 50 bucks. And he was absolutely devastated. And then he had to change the whole documentary about how baseball cards aren't worth anything anymore. Anyway, right? Because they're worthless now. Nobody wants baseball cards. Right? But Apple stock, I forget, it was like 30 cents a, you know, a share or something back then. It's like right when Apple was crashing before it came back up. Knowing what you know now, you would make different decisions in 1998. That's kind of what Jesus is saying here. I'm giving you guys the end of the story. You need to live with eternal perspective. We need to live like eternity is actually going to happen. Right? The, the, the numbers, like the statistics on death, is what I would say, are staggering. One out of one people die. <laughs> right? Everybody, someday, you don't like to think about it, you're going to die. Right? The doctor is going to sit you down and tell you the bad news. Something in your body is going to stop working. Maybe cancer is going to spread. Your heart's going to give out. Blood's going to clot, whatever it is. Maybe it's going to be an accident, car accident, skydiving accident. That's how I want to go. Skydiving. Just kidding. Who knows? Something's going to happen. You're going to get hit by a Jeep Grand Cherokee. And I know that happens to people because one time I got hit by a Jeep Grand Cherokee. Either way, accident, sickness, something. It's really going to happen to you. You're going to die. It's going to, you're going to, at some point, you're going to suck in your last little bit of breath, and it's going to be the last time that you breathe in this earth. It may be quick, it may be painful, but it's going to happen. If you're a believer, follower of Jesus, a disciple, you are going to close your eyes in this world, and you're going to open them back up, and you're going to see Jesus. And he is going to hug you and smile And then all of a sudden, you're going to be flooded with this intense sense of, I'm finally home. I'm finally content. The sin that was ravaging me on the inside is gone. 
this is how it's supposed to be. Then you're going to look back at your life and you're going to realize how much time and money and energy you wasted on things that didn't matter at all. And you're going to realize how the things you thought that were important here weren't really that important and didn't matter. And you're going to wish that you had perspective. You're going to go, I was so stupid. (laughs) I can't believe I thought that that thing was going to make me happy when I could have used my money for this. I could have used my time for this, whatever it is. And you're going to spend, this is cool, I like to think about this. You're going to spend billions of years in the new heavens and new earth. Think about how long that is compared to how long you're going to be on this earth. Trillions of years. I don't know what comes after trillions, but that's how much years we're going to live. Isn't Google a number? Is that right? Yeah, okay. Googles of years. Is that a thing? Is that how you say that? In eternity. Wishing that you had had the perspective. Wishing that you had thought about that more. That reality is what's ultimate. That reality is what's so true. And so right now, we don't live in that time. We are waiting for that perfection to come, for that perfectly contented life. But if that's what's really coming up next in our story as followers of Jesus, that has a massive impact on how we deal with money and our stuff and our wealth in this life. You guys remember in the, what was that, the 90s, I guess it would have been? Everybody in churches had those WWJD bracelets. Do you remember this? What would Jesus do? It was like this really cheesy Christian fad, which also is just terrible theology because he's God and he's allowed to do stuff that you're not allowed to do, by the way. Right? Uh, <laughs> so, okay. I, don't, I never particularly liked those. Boy, I saw a guy got a tattoo that day. Anyway, okay, that's a poor tattoo choice. Um, I never liked that slogan. Let me give you a better one. This is my life's motto. This is my slogan. This is, I, I talk about this a lot, to the point where it annoys people, I think. But anyway, here's what I think. I ask myself this question. Am I going to care about this when I'm dead? Right? That's such a good kind of way to live. You're going to be dead someday, and you're going to, is this what I'm going to care about when I'm dead? It's, it's great for just anxiety stuff, right? Am I, you know, am I going to care about this when I'm dead? But also, as I'm purchasing this thing, or as I'm thinking about putting money here or doing whatever, um, by the way, listening to a pastor do a whole sermon about money is like, I don't know, one of those sermons where a single pastor does a sermon about marriage and everybody's sitting there going, but you've never been married, right? And I'm a church planner. I never had any money. So I'm just kind of joking around like, you know, when you put money over here and you do all this stuff that I've never done because I never had any money. I've been a pastor since I was 20. But, you know, as you're doing whatever people with money do with money and you're moving it around and you're doing stuff, think about that. Am I going to care about this when I'm dead? That's the application. I don't want you to leave with just a list of things, okay, I need to change my spending. You know, I don't want to get too specific, I guess. Right? Because a lot of the way we use our money for the kingdom of God is a wisdom issue. You know, like there were some people in the early church in Acts who sold their houses and gave the money to the church. And then some people didn't. Right? And nobody said, hey, you guys are the bad guys. Right? There were wisdom issues that need to be flushed out. Um, and so I don't want to end a sermon with how most sermons on money end. You need to give the church more money or Jesus doesn't really love you. You know what I mean? That's not what we're after here. We're after something, you know, that, that guilt crap, right? it just, it's not helpful and it dishonors our king. Um, so I want to do something a little like end a little different. 
ask this question. Are you shrewd with your life and your money? Do you look at your money and your kingdom eternity goals and think, how can this help me get to this? Right? How can I move from here to here with this money that I have? Is your life set up, right, your money, all this stuff, for kingdom living? Do you think about that when you make big decisions with money? If the answer to that is no, what I don't want you to do is I don't want you to leave here just feeling guilty and thinking, okay, I just got to suck it up, white knuckle it, and do this thing I don't really want to do because the pastor said so when I was at church. Again, that's not really helpful teaching. Here's how you move from self-centered, short-sighted money life to kingdom money life, is you look at Jesus. He's the ultimate example of this kind of living, right? He spent everything to bring you back to the Father. The most expensive thing that anybody ever purchased was your redemption. Think about it. What did it cost? It cost God himself his very life. It didn't cost a few dollars, right? It cost Jesus dying. And he sat in Gethsemane, our Lord. He sat in Gethsemane and he said, Father, I don't really want to do this. This is going to majorly suck, what I'm about to go through. But he looked at what was in front of him, and he looked at his goal, which was your redemption, and he said, all right, let's do it. This is, how, this is how much our Savior loves us. Hebrews says this in Hebrews 12. Look at Jesus, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Right? I love that verse. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. It never says the cross was joyful and fun. It wasn't. It was awful and it was horrible. But the joy on the other side of that was you. He did all of that so that someday you could close your eyes in death and he could give you that hug. That's how much he spent on you. Right? And now he's experiencing that joy, the joy of the spirit living within you, and that you get to spend eternity with the Father. He did all of that for you. And so, as followers of our king, the more that that story is true in our lives, the more that that story is pressed deep into our soul, right, into your soul, the more you will live with a wise and shrewd kingdom perspective about your money. So don't go home and change your money habits. That's not what I want you to do at the end of a sermon on money. This is what I want you to do. I want you to go home and think about Jesus. Go home and think about the cost of your redemption, and then... When that truth is really hammered into your soul, spend your money however you want. <laughs> because what's going to happen is you're going to want to spend your money on kingdom things. Because as the Spirit moves in your life, presses that gospel story into your soul, right, the more you will see your money for what it really is. This thing that's not going to hold up your worship, but that can be used to get you, you know, to, to work you towards this ultimate goal. You're going to want to use it for things that you're going to care about when you're dead. Amen? All right, let's pray. So Lord, we, you know, we thank you for this, this, this text and this teaching that you have given us, all these teachings and Luke about money because, you know, we you know, are some of the wealthiest people in the history of the world. We thank you that you have blessed us and you've given us, you know, things that make us comfortable and just things we even take for granted, running water and, you know, I don't know, the ways to get around transportation, you know, just all this stuff you've blessed us with that we don't deserve. But Lord, we don't want to just um, be the kind of followers of you who just, you know, um, get lazy and wait to die. 
just try to be as comfortable as we can until we're dead. But we want to be the kind of shrewd kingdom people that you talk about in this parable. So we, we ask, Lord, that you would you know, show us your face. Let us see you and worship you and love you more and more each day so that our perspective on our wealth and our stuff completely changes. I thank you for folks, you know, at First Pres and at the porch. Um, and Chris and I have talked about this before, just, you know, how generous and loving and awesome these folks are with money, Lord. We just pray that we would be even, you know, we would do that even more, that we would love you even more and have more of a kingdom eternal perspective. So we just ask that, um, you know, you would be here with us now, send your spirit upon us and, you know, just press the truth of how beautiful and wonderful you are into our very souls. We pray this in your name. Amen.